Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. One of our sponsors this week is a company that does intelligent innovation, stylish brilliance, and just beautiful design. It is called Groa, spelt G-R-O-H-E. They are the makers of innovative faucets and showering products. They are renowned worldwide for their German engineering, cosmopolitan style, intuitive performance, and sustainability. Groa products feel like they were designed just for you. I have a Groa product right now. It is called the Groa Smart Control. It's the latest in shower customization technology. Yes, that's right, shower customization technology. Smart Control lets you manage up to three bath and shower functions with one seamless control. You can declutter your shower. It will elevate your experience in the shower. It is really amazing the way it works. It's fully customizable, personalizable shower technology with preset temperature volume controls this smart control you have to check it out it's a beautiful design it is available uh from groa.us slash hive once again go to groa g-r-o-h-e dot u-s slash hive uh, and change the way you shower today so i want to welcome my guest this week uh to the show. Uh, it's a woman I actually saw speak in person a few months ago at a conference uh, on antitrust and technology. Her name is Sally Hubbard. And I was watching this conference at the Milken Institute, and there were all of these people from the Department of Justice and uh, educators and so on that were saying, oh, we don't need to enforce any kind of antitrust rules against these tech companies. And Sally was the one person, clearly smarter than everyone else, that was saying, actually, we do. Uh, Sally is currently a writer for the Capital Forum. Uh, and before that, she was a assistant attorney general in the New York State Attorney General's Antitrust Bureau under Elliot Spitzer and Cuomo and Eric Schneiderman. She's investigated and prosecuted a wide range of anti-competitive conduct under the federal and state antitrust laws. And she is an expert. And when I say expert, I mean expert on all things antitrust and tech from Facebook to Google to Amazon and whether we should be breaking up these companies or not, especially in light of all of the things that are happening in society that are leading to the destruction of democracy. Thanks a lot, Mark Zuckerberg. So I would love to welcome Sally to the show. Make sure you stick around after we have a special second part of this uh, podcast this week with a interview that you should not miss. So without further ado... Uh, Sally, welcome to the show. I'm very, very excited to have this conversation today. Um, so let's just give listeners a little bit of an overview. Can you tell us uh, how long you have been on this side of the aisle and how long you were on the other side of the aisle actually enforcing antitrust? So I was enforcing antitrust uh, for, at the New York State Attorney General's office for almost seven years. I was hired by Elliot Spitzer and was there through uh, the Cuomo administration and into Schneiderman. Um, and then I started being a writer 
uh, which was a luxurious thing to be able to step back and look at the big picture of antitrust instead of being so mired in the uh, litigation realities. And I've been doing that for, geez, I think six and a half years now. And for the last two years, over maybe almost two and a half years now, I've just been writing about Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and antitrust and privacy. So one of the things you wrote that really caught my attention recently was you were saying that uh, about Facebook, that it actually, the fake news problem, which is at its height right now as, you know, we're two weeks away from the election, um, that the fake news problem could actually be solved in kind of an antitrust way. Can you explain how that would work? Sure. Yeah, I wrote this piece back in January 2017 saying that I thought that fake news was at least in part an antitrust problem. And at that time, I kind of thought this fake news thing was going to blow away or be fixed. And boy, was I wrong, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, I realized a few things about the market uh, structure that was contributing to this fake news problem. And one of the reasons why I thought fake news was an antitrust problem was because Facebook was competing against legitimate news for user attention. Um, So they were actually kind of competitors in the same market for the amount of hours that we have in a day to be consuming media, right? And um, because they were soaking up all the ad dollars, they were actually destroying the legitimate news that we need to counter fake news. Um, I also thought it was an antitrust problem because the scope of the harm was so big because of the fact that Facebook had become so dominant, right? You know, you can game one algorithm and reach 2 billion users, which has never before been possible. Um, But the most important point was really if Facebook had competition, then, you know, users and advertisers could go to go elsewhere if they were angry that Facebook didn't fix this fake news problem. Right. You know, without any competition, they can just choose their business model, which, you know, prioritizes stuff that makes you fearful and angry and engages you the most. They can just blindly pursue that because they have no risk of really losing people uh, to a competitor. What's so fascinating is I, when I look at Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, to, you know, just today, there's the news that, you know, that Trump is stoking about um, the caravan, the 5,000 person caravan uh, that's heading towards the border. And, you know, he's, of course, saying nonsense, like there, you know, there are people from the Middle East in there that are coming to, to bomb America and this, that and the other. And what's happening on Facebook is that people are sharing, you know, one of the most shared photos and articles yesterday and today is a picture of a bunch of um, police officers from South America covered in blood from riots. And people are sharing this. Uh, it's, it's, of course, fake news. And they're saying that the caravan did this on their way up here. And it really, it's actually a photo, a, a series of photos from uh, uh, some protests years ago with some students that has absolutely nothing to do with anything related to today. And and it is the most shared thing on Facebook. And, and the thing I don't understand is, and I'm curious what you think, is do, does Facebook just not care? Is it in their best interest for these things to be shared? And if they continue to, is there going to be any repercussion or is this just where we are? So it's in Facebook's best interest for the most engaging content to be shared, right? Because what it wants to do is keep users on its platform as long as possible. It's not really getting any new users. It's just trying to get more of your time. And even that has been going down recently. Uh, The more time you're on the platform, the more ads it can show you, the more data it can collect about you. So the algorithms with that profit 
and business model in mind are designed to engage you. And sadly, what engages humans is stuff that makes you angry and fearful, right? So, you know, it's not just that the humans are sharing this this fake news so much, which is which is true, but the algorithm is serving it up, right? I mean, you don't see everything that's posted on Facebook. You see what the algorithm decides to show you. Um, and the algorithm is showing you the stuff that engages you the most. And because the algorithm knows so much about you, has so much data on you and data on people who are like you, it knows what you're likely to click on and respond to. And, you know, so that's serving their business model. I don't think Facebook wants this particular bit of fake news to be served up, but it's not going to go ahead and change its whole algorithms um, and its business model to stop it. Whereas if it had some competition, maybe there would be another uh, social media platform that says, you know, actually, we our algorithm prioritizes news that is we know is well-researched and has some certain credentials associated with it. You know, there's other ways you could be prioritizing what content is served up to people. Um, go ahead. Well, when you so um, when the first time I met you, actually, we were, it was at the Milken Institute. It was at a conference, and you were on a panel. Um, and the current assistant uh, attorney general was there, uh, Makan Del Delraham, and he he seemed like he was just like, eh, whatever. These things don't. These companies don't need uh, regulation. Uh, it, with all of the companies that were discussed, Google, a- Apple, Amazon, all of them, and we'll get to all those, of course, in this conversation. But if you were in charge, would you? apply some sort of antitrust rules to these companies? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why is it not happening then? Is it just, be, is it, am I missing something? Um, you know, this is there's just this crazy disjunct between common sense and real people and the antitrust establishment. Um, you know, uh, the antitrust establishment uh, has become so mired in these technocratic details that, you know, really have made antitrust nearly useless um, because of this emphasis on these economic effects. Like if you don't have a price effect or you can't show a reduction in output, then under the current case law, it's really hard to bring a case. And so many people have accepted that this is the state of affairs and that this is the way it is and that it's not going to change and doesn't even need to. And that's largely because it's something that's been driven by, you know, corporate defendants and well-paid lawyers and economists. And they've largely been driving the narrative. And there's like a select group of kind of people like me. Maybe there's like 20 of us (laughs) who think there really needs to be uh, some major changes and that antitrust is missing the mark. Um, And it needs to go back to its historic roots, which was um, combating concentrated power and um, both economic and political power. And so the so what you're saying essentially is that the antitrust rules that exist today were not built or were not built for a company like Facebook or Amazon. Uh, they were built for for completely different entities, and that that the laws actually need to change. Well, so the actual laws themselves, like the is the Sherman Act, is the main one that deals with conduct of um, antitrust. Um, by, does that deals with antitrust conduct? Then there's a Clayton Act that deals with mergers. The Sherman Act was passed in 1890, and it was passed wow. in the face of huge companies like Standard Oil. Right. So it actually is intended for that purpose. What's happened was starting in like the 1960s, there was a Chicago School of Economics that took over um, and, and got a lot of success in the courts to create these standards that really made economics and efficiencies be the number one priority. Um, and so now there's a lot of legal precedent, you know, case law 
that has developed and makes it hard for enforcers to enforce the actual antitrust statutes. But the antitrust statutes are fine. They are designed exactly for this. I mean, maybe they didn't see that it was going to be the Internet at the time, but they're designed to combat huge corporations that have too much power. So speaking of huge corporations that have too much power, the one that everyone always points to um, is Amazon. Uh, And the part for me about Amazon that I find so distressing is not necessarily how big it is, uh, but how big it is is going to continue to get. I mean, Jeff Bezos is worth, depending on the hour of the day, what, $160 billion personally. Um, You know, Amazon's a trillion-dollar company. And, and, you know, he was uh, he was doing an interview a couple weeks ago and he was saying how the thing about Amazon that makes it a unique company is that they can there's not a business that they cannot get into uh, and not apply their algorithms and their data. And you've written quite a bit uh, and talked quite a bit about how they do things that that are just blatantly uh, in favor of Amazon and against the smaller companies is it just that no one's looking at this or is it that um, Amazon's really, really smart about it and that's how they get away with it? No, I don't actually think they're that smart about it. I mean, um, they were very smart and Lena Khan wrote this brilliant article called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox where they followed kind of the model that had been laid out by Walmart, which is as long as you give consumers low prices, you can get away with uh, a lot of kind of bullying tactics in the marketplace. And uh, because antitrust law, and and like I said, the Chicago School of Economics really focuses on this thing called the consumer welfare standard. And as long as consumers are happy, then you can get away with whatever you're doing. So that's been the smart part about it. But they're doing a lot of conduct that I think would be uh, successful antitrust cases. And, um, you know, I've been pointing out the antitrust risks that I think the company faces because of the conduct, and I don't know why nothing has been done about it in the U.S. I do know that Europe has started an investigation um, against uh, looking at how Amazon uses data of those sellers and brands on the marketplace to um, undermine competition on the marketplace. So I think they're going to get it from Europe. Didn't um, Amazon do something recently uh, where they ousted marketplace sellers to the that the only the only thing available was actually the Amazon product. Yes. And so <laughs> yes, and and, and to like, me that is that is clear exclusionary conduct that it would 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 be enough to bring a monopolization claim. So under antitrust law, it's not actually illegal to be a monopoly, but it is illegal to monopolize. So you need to have both monopoly power and some kind of exclusionary conduct, and that's exclusionary conduct. I mean, you know, so. I, I think there's a case there. Um, I think there's been a lack of political will. But but isn't okay? But you know, one of the things that I mean, Trump hates everything. But one of the things he clearly hates is Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Wouldn't he say, okay, let's go after these guys? Or is it that he doesn't think that they can win, or that the DOJ has more important things to worry about right now? Or what do you think the reason that the Trump administration hasn't said let's do you it? Know, the Trump administration can just confuse you and um, make you scratch your head <laughs> a lot <laughs> uh, because simultaneously with these kind of angry tweets about Amazon, the Pentagon is awarding Amazon the gigantic. Contract um, that this Jedi contract that um, is you know worth a huge amount of money and the contract the um, what is called the RFP looks as if it was custom crafted for Amazon. So you have like different parts of mm-hmm. the government that are um, really 
catering to Amazon. And I just saw today that there was a report that Amazon's spending the most on lobbying it ever has in the wake of these Pentagon contracts. So I don't know. He says one thing, but then, you know, the people that he put in charge are people who are more of this antitrust establishment that doesn't really believe in robust antitrust enforcement and thinks the markets will just take care of everything and there'll be some sort of disruption eventually. Do you think that there it would require um, a Democratic president to be in office for any of this antitrust stuff to actually happen because Republicans, by and large, don't usually bring antitrust cases? It's tricky because Obama really wasn't aggressive at all with the tech platform. So actually, when Trump won or whatever, got the uh, got the presidency. <laughs> <I can't>. <laughs> <laughs> when he got enough of the electoral I won't vote say to he say won. that he won. Um, yeah. When Trump became president, I actually wrote an article saying that I thought that the risk of antitrust enforcement to the tech platforms was now higher than it would have been under mm. Hillary and definitely than it was under the Obama administration because there was just so much kind of um, political coziness um, between Silicon Valley and the Obama administration. So, um, it you know, if Trump really is this kind of new type of Republican that doesn't stick with conservative values, you could see there being enforcement here, especially because his base is pretty much anti-Silicon Valley. But, you know, the, a lot of people who's put in power are more kind of the traditional conservative uh, views that don't really want uh, robust government intervention in big business. So how can you tell us, explain how, if, if let's just say that they, that they brought an antitrust case against Amazon, for example, or Facebook, let's pick Amazon for this one, how would it actually work and what would the end result be? Would they, would they break it up? Would, it, would they say there were certain things they can and cannot sell? Like what would, what would be the process? If they were to bring in a monopolization case against Amazon for some of the practices that I've been discussing, things like, you know, using the data of the other brands and third-party sellers that are on its platform and then taking over it themselves and prioritizing their own products in the top of their search rankings and giving themselves the buy box and kind of burying the competition The more likely result than breaking up would be some sort of a remedy that requires them to either, you know, to basically just be the marketplace and not also participate in a vertical way as also a seller on the marketplace. It's kind of, um, so that's one. So it's not, yeah, it's not breaking them up. It's, uh, it's limiting some of the things they can do. Right. And another thing that is possible is to do what we saw in Europe Um, with the Google Shopping case where they said, Google, you need to treat your competitors equally as you treat yourself. So there could be sort of a equal treatment slash kind of non-discrimination or neutrality requirement. That would be pretty hard to enforce. So some sort of a structural rule that they can't also be a seller on the platform would probably be the make the most sense. And with Facebook, the the thing that a lot of people write about is that they do believe that Facebook should be broken up, that, that Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp should be made into separate companies with separate leadership because Mark Zuckerberg has so much power with those three entities by sharing data between them and controlling you know, what goes on what platform. Is, that, is there a universe where that actually ever happens? 
I mean, it happened in the AT&T breakup many years ago. Um, you know, Standard Oil was broken up. Um, you know, so there is precedent for breaking up these companies. It's pretty far from where I would say the current enforcers are thinking in terms of, you know, we're in a time still of kind of really pro-big business. You know, this is not an era that's anti-big business. Um so the odds of it happening politically, I don't know. But I do think if you're going to deal with some of the issues involving Facebook's dominance, the probably only clean way to deal with it would be to require some sort of a, like a divestiture of Instagram or WhatsApp. Because, you know, certainly Facebook views Instagram as its plan B right now. And it can kind of do all kinds of conduct that, you know, doesn't seem to make sense. That's killing its brand reputation because it knows that it has that fallback position. But with AT&T, so the, one of the things I've, I've never really kind of understood, so AT&T gets split up, and now AT&T is, of course, acquiring all these companies and growing again to the, to this massive degree. It's, you know, a $250 billion company today and continuing to grow. Is it just, it, it, is there a world where you could find these companies back in the same place that they were, and even if they do get split up? I mean, I guess that's possible. I mean, the difference now with AT&T is, you know, most of the world has gone mobile and we have, um, you know, Verizon, um, T-Mobile. So we have, you know, a few companies competing, whereas when it was broken up, it was literally like the only game in town. So one of the questions that I always get asked and I'm, I always and I don't know the answer to is as these companies continue to grow specifically in Amazon um, and Google, uh, and automation takes over. Um, you're going to have a situation where automation will will just literally take jobs overnight. Uh, and in that situation, um, these companies are going to, it, it, they're going to become so big and so powerful that there's going to be kind of no stopping them. Um, and what do you think happens in a situation like that? Do you think that there's a world in which the government realizes before this happens uh, what is on the horizon and does something to kind of ensure that Amazon doesn't become a $100 trillion company or whatever? Um, uh, or is it going to be kind of a little bit of a hindsight is 2020 and uh, and something will have to be done after millions of people lose their jobs? I mean, so far, the government regulation of the tech giants has definitely been a hindsight model, right? I mean, um, the reason why I think we're in such a mess that we're in now is because there's been virtually no regulation of them and also no competition, right? So that's why we have uh, the tech giants kind of being able to pursue their business models without any uh, restraints that normal companies would have to deal with that kind of keeps companies in check, right? Like, I actually don't think these companies are any worse than any bad, you know, they're not bad actors. They're just corporations pursuing profits and governments haven't done their job of making sure that they have open markets that allow for competition to keep them in check and and also, you know, some regulations to protect the American people or um, in Europe, they're starting to to do that more. Um, So will they get ahead of it? That is... (laughs) Optimistic. <laughs> I have to, I have to ask. Come on. Yeah. Um, that's optimistic. I do think that some of the regulation that's happening now, particularly in Europe, where they're trying to, you know, create some 
rights for users and over their data. And they're trying to check some of the anti-competitive conduct against Google. And what's happening instead is that, you know, there was just uh, news that came out about the Google Android remedy. And Google is kind of just showing the European enforcers, oh, ha, ha, you thought you could regulate us? No, sorry, we're going to do something explain, else. Wait, explain what that was? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, the Google Android case was was about how um, Google required phone manufacturers to install um, who that used who used the Android operating system, which has something like an eighty percent worldwide market share, um, which makes it qualify as a monopoly. Um, requiring them to install its whole kind of bundle of apps, including the Google Play Store if they wanted to have the Android operating system. And so this meant that no other competing apps could be the default that was pre-installed into someone's phone, and it was a really effective way for Google to kind of transfer its monopoly power that it had on desktop search into the mobile world as, as the world went mobile. And uh, the decision, the $5 billion fine that came out, said that they can't, no, they can't keep a lock on the Android operating system. They need to allow other apps to be pre-installed. And Google now is coming out with all these kind of games that, okay, well, now we're going to charge everyone forty up to $40 for the App Store. And, you know, they're, they're doing a lot. Their proposed way of dealing with um, the requirement that they've, that they've been given to kind of allow open competition on the Android operating system has been kind of um, disingenuous and just kind of proving to the European enforcers that they really can't be regulated, that they're too powerful. Um, and that they're not really going to obey any of the wishes of the regulators. And I actually think this is very short-sighted, and so maybe it will lead to more aggressive action like the type you're talking about when enforcers realize that these companies are just getting so powerful that even governments can't regulate them. Is is Google, um, uh, are they doing things that are, is it kind of just tongue-in-cheek and, you know, oh, don't tell us what to do, Um, or is it, more that they're trying to continue to maintain market share, uh, and that's why they're trying to find these workarounds? Yeah, I'm sure they're, it's in their profit interest to um, find the workarounds and to continue the growth and to continue um, their lockdown on, you know, 90% of the world's mobile phones. So, you know, they certainly have every profit motive to do that, and if the antitrust enforcers uh, in Europe aren't showing that they actually can be forced to comply, then, you know, of course, Google is going to do that. But I do think there is going to be this kind of short-sighted, there's a little short-sighted aspect of it where um, if you prove that you really can't be controlled in any way, then it could lead to more robust or more drastic measures from enforcers. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. If you have $3 and you want to start trading stocks with that, Robinhood will allow you to do that. It is simple. It's intuitive. It is stunning. I mean, I'm not just saying this. It is stunningly beautifully designed. 
I recently signed up for it. I started buying just a little bit of stocks, not much, a few dollars here and there. One of the great things about Robinhood is that other brokerage charge up to $10 for every single trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, or you name it. It's all just your profits. The design is amazing. Another aspect of it that I love is that Robinhood has this web platform that allows you to see collections of stocks. So you can follow the 100 most popular stocks or just entertainment stocks or social media stocks. They even have a category called female CEOs. It's really amazing. You have to check it out. Uh, it's just a really intuitive, amazing experience. But I am telling you this is the best part today. Robinhood is giving listeners of Inside the Hive a free stock. I mean, literally free money. They are giving you a free stock. All you have to do is sign up at Bilton, that's my last name, B-I-L-T-O-N dot Robinhood dot com. That's Bilton, B-I-L-T-O-N dot Robinhood dot com. Robinhood is spelled R-O-B-I-N. H-O-O-D.com, and you can get a free stock. They're going to give you Apple, Ford, or Sprint. It's going to help you build your portfolio. It's literally free money. Bilton.robinhood.com. So over the summer, we saw um, uh, maybe three or four different hearings, maybe even more, uh, with all these tech companies, um, you know, and those famous moments where the old senators couldn't, you know, had these printouts of questions that their aides had told them to ask. They clearly had no idea what they were asking or what they were talking about. But it was so interesting that it was out on display with all these questions being asked of Twitter, of Facebook, of um, of Google, uh, and when even when Google didn't show up, of course. But is was all that just kind of like a bit of a, a kind of pantomime just to appear like the the government is interested in these companies and their power and what they can do and what they shouldn't be doing? Or is any of that, is there a world where any of that actually does lead to some sort of regulation against these companies? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say how much of it is show and how much of it is real action. Um, I think there are certainly some members of Congress that do care about these issues. There's actually an antitrust caucus now in the Democrat um, uh, that, that's comprised of Democrats in the House. Um, that if they get some a majority, um, perhaps after the, after the midterms, perhaps we'll start to see some actual regulations. Um, there's a big problem, which is that these tech giants are spending a lot of money on lobbying. So. There are, and, and yeah. they're just they're just trying to make sure that these things don't happen. So it's not right. in their so that it's not so even though they put out all this bullshit that they the tech giants that they are you know trying to make the world a better place they're secretly behind the scenes lobbying to say that don't tell us what to do. Right. I mean, there's tremendous. I mean, they're spending tremendous amounts of money. I mean, I think I just saw Amazon spent. Uh, 35 million in this quarter or something like that. Actually, don't quote me on that. Um, but they're spending tremendous but amounts of money. it's tens of millions of dollars. And, yeah. yeah. And and Facebook spent more on Republicans than than Democrats, you know, um, recently. So I think there's uh, this kind of public persona that these are these liberal bastions, but they're spending a lot of money on Republican uh, members of Congress as well. So... That does give me a bit of pause in terms of the, a legislative fix. I mean, what I was talking about before with antitrust enforcement doesn't need to come from Congress. It needs to come from the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, or the Department of Justice, or even the state's attorney generals um, could also uh, 
bring action. Yeah, that was my next question. So one of the things we we have seen under the Trump administration is that um, state level attorney generals have been doing things that the um, federal level have not. And is there a scenario where you get some of the state level attorney generals that are actually the ones that make something change? Yeah, actually, the Microsoft case, which is the last major monopolization case that we had uh, against a tech company, was actually initiated by the states. The states started all um, investigating, and then the the federal um, agencies joined in, the Department of Justice joined in. So they could certainly be the impetus for it. It would be hard for the states to take on one of these tech giants on their own just because of resources. A lot of states have like one antitrust lawyer uh, in their enforcement. Um, There's a handful of states, like I was at New York, we had about a dozen um, of antitrust enforcers, but that's still a much smaller number than what the federal agencies have. So they can certainly be the impetus for it, and they can certainly start invest. There's a lot of pending investigations right now, actually. Um, On the state level? On the state level. Um, So how does that, how does it work? So let's just say that they, they, the state, you know, like Southern District of New York brings, brings uh, you know, sues or brings a case. How does it? If does it then go to the court and and if it's enforced, it goes up a level, or is it that that in that state these rules now apply, or how does it work from a technical standpoint? So it depends. A lot of times when states are bringing really big cases, what they'll do is a multi-state action where they'll work together with a bunch of other states, and then ordinarily. Um, so the first thing they'll do is an investigation, and then they'll bring a complaint. Um, and ordinarily, if it's a multi-state action, that will be brought in federal court usually. Um, and uh, then, yeah, you can appeal it up to in the federal court system. Um, a lot of times, you know, like if it gets that far, that's when you would normally have the federal government um, jump in. I, I I can't recall a time when the states initiated like a, a major um, monopolization case against a, a major you know global company without it eventually being a collaboration with the federal agencies. Okay, so if I put you in charge, I said, okay, you are now in charge of uh, antitrust for the United States government. Uh, who would be the first company you would go after? Well, I think the easiest case, um, not that, unfortunately, as when you're an enforcer, you tend to think in terms in those mind in that when you're an enforcer, unfortunately, you tend to think in that way that you go for the easiest cases, which is not always the most important cases. But I think the Google Android case that was brought in Europe is the exact same thing as the US v Microsoft case. It's so similar. Um, because uh, Google was basically engaging in contact, conduct that was exclusionary and that also reinforced its monopoly power in search. So I would bring that first just to show that you can bring a case against a tech giant because I think that that would be the easiest to win. Um, in terms of what am I most concerned about, I don't know. I'm concerned about all three, uh, Google, Apple. I mean, not, I'm not concerned as much about Apple. I'm concerned more about Google, Facebook, and Amazon, I'm concerned about Google and Facebook because of their control over information flow and their surveillance business models um, that I think yeah. are very dangerous, uh, not just for, you know, for competition, but also for democracy, um, you know, and freedom. <laughs> 
So, uh, 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 are, uh, but aren't they? Aren't people on the federal level concerned about that too? They should be. Um, you know, the federal at the federal level, there's not really any comprehensive privacy legislation. You know, we hmm. have the new the California law that will be coming uh, effective in 2020, and what we're seeing right now at the federal level is actually a lobbying effort of the tech giants to pass a law that could be used to preempt the California law or make the California law not apply. So they're going to be trying to get actually a weaker law into play um, that could then make the California law unenforceable. That's one of the strategies that's reportedly going on right now. That sounds really, they sound like such lovely people. Uh, <laughs> so you just you just mentioned Apple and Apple has kind of made it its business mm-hmm. model from pretty much from day one to, to be the opposite of this. They, you know, uh, they have, they don't invade your privacy um, in the same way that Google and others do. Uh, they go to great lengths, in fact, to protect it. Um, they kind of act like a different company. And I, you know, I don't know if Tim Cook is, is the choir boy that he, tends to be when he's being interviewed and so on but you know it's a it's a business decision that they've made to be that company and is there a scenario where apple lobbies to have antitrust cases brought against google as its competition does that ever happen i mean they certainly yes it does happen that companies can be advocating for antitrust cases against other competitors um you know, the question is, does, how much does Google and Apple really compete? I mean, yes, they have the... Um, well, on the iPhone and iPhone, Android. but I, I just don't know. I feel like they're kind of, they've got their niches carved out. I don't know how many Android users are going to fork over the many hundreds, almost, what, $1,000 for an iPhone now. Um, you know, they've kind of got their um, markets kind of carved out. And I think, I don't know how much, uh, I don't know how much Apple cares about you know, advocating against against Google. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned a few times uh, the EU, and it seems like, you know, there are big, partially because of World War II and partially because of just the culture there um, uh, and, the, and the limit on size of business and so on. Uh, the EU is much more... Uh, concerned with, like, genuinely concerned with these issues of fake news, of um, of monopolies, of of so on, and you kind of hear a lot of these these instances where they invite Mark Zuckerberg to come and you know sit in front of the EU and be interviewed, and they and, and they bring cases against Google and this that and the other. Do any of those things have a global impact, or are they just uh, going to affect these companies in the EU? No, they definitely do have a, a global impact, and I think they're going to have more of an impact going into the future. It's just that it, these things take time. Um, you know, actually, America used to be the leader of antitrust enforcement, and in fact, the European antitrust laws were modeled after the American laws. We were the first ones to have antitrust laws, um, and unfortunately, now the EU has taken kind of that mantle as the global leader. And whenever they actually make a decision, they issue their reports in 20 different languages. Um, And we've seen follow-on actions um, to what EU has done in countries like India, um, Turkey. You know, there's definitely going to be global impact. And and you have to wonder, you know, once they get something like the general data protection regulation, their big privacy regulation, once they get that really working and enforced, why aren't 
people around the rest of the world going to say, hey, I want to have those rights too. I mean, it just... Is it just that, is it because with all just with all res- due respect to Americans, uh, we're kind of a little bit oblivious and unaware in a, in a way that uh, that other countries are not? I mean, it, I mean, I think if you look at, at Europe, for example, uh, there's an example of a a group of countries that have a long history of of terrible things happening. They are way more aware. I mean, if you go to Germany, you can and you'd speak to Germans. There's still memory and uh, an embarrassment even about about what took place in the 1940s. And and here we're just like go big or go home. And is it just that is it is it that there's a massive cultural difference? I think there's a couple of different cultural differences. On on the privacy front, I think you're right. The history in Europe um, has shown the dangers of having your government spy on you, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I saw a woman speak. Her name was Vera Langsfeld, and she had been um, a member of the German parliament and uh, in Berlin a couple summers ago. And she talked about how when she was an activist against the East German government, um, she later found out that 40 of her closest friends were spying on her, had file, kept files on her for the government. Wow. 40 of her friends. And at one point she was incarcerated by the government and they knew what her favorite symphony was from one of her friends that was spying on her. And they played her favorite symphony to torture her and make her feel very sad about being away from her children and her home. So you think... That's crazy. So I, that always stuck with me because, you know, Americans often you'll say, they're like, I don't have anything to hide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, the most innocuous thing could be used to torture you at some point. Um, and the other thing that people really don't understand, and it's, I think, a fraud on the American people, to be honest, um, they don't understand how they're being tracked. They really don't. Yeah. They have this abstract idea of how they're being tracked. They don't understand it. And that's a deliberate result of it not being in the profit incentives for Facebook or Google to show you that and the government doing nothing about it, right? Um, they don't understand it. So I think when people say, I've, I've been on panels with academics from top universities who are being paid by Google to say people don't value privacy and um, doing these ridiculous studies. And I'm like, why don't you give them an option and let them know how much they're really being tracked? And then we'll find out what they, what they value. I mean, if they don't know what the problem is, how can they decide? Um, well, it's also one of the one of the most searched things on Google is Google because people don't understand. I mean, literally, it's like one of the top search things on Google still to this day. It's is is people go to Google and they type in Google because that's how they think that they have to start searching for Google. And <laughs> and it's it just is a perfect example of the fact that that people have no concept. And uh, it's yeah, I mean, it's it's mind boggling. I mean, the fact that you know Cambridge Analytica, what they were capable of doing. Uh, and got away with for years is just a perfect example of that. Yeah, and I think um, the other thing that people don't understand, not only do they not understand how they're being tracked and how Facebook and Google are combining the data that is on the platforms themselves, much plus a 360-degree view of their activity around the web, plus offline purchasing behavior, you know, store loyalty cards, all of this, these data sets are being combined. People don't understand that. And the other thing they don't understand is that because Facebook and Google are doing it for advertising, that sounds pretty harmless. But guess what? The laws keeping this information out of the hands of the federal government are so weak. So if you're someone who doesn't like Trump, 
The, you know, they, the Trump administration or the Obama administration, whichever administration you despise, which half of America despises each of those, right, um, can get, they can say, Apple, give me the, or Google, give me the information about Sally Hubbard. I want to know every search she's given in the last 10 years. I, and Google could try to fight them on it, but they, they don't have much, they're, they don't. There's a lot of authority for the federal government to just get that information. The laws are very weak. Wow. So you um, you sent me uh, a document um, before we uh, before we jumped on this podcast, and it's kind of a, a, an overview of all the tech platforms and the, the expansive regulatory risks. And it's a it's a long document, and there's a lot of stuff. And you know, there's the FTC investigating if to, if if Facebook broke its its consent decree from 2011. There's, you know, investigations of Google breaking its consent decrees. There's all these different things. Um, and uh, and I just, I'm curious if any of it, if any of these actually will go anywhere. If there's any thing that you actually think is going to actually lead to either stopping a monopolization of a Google or an Amazon, or actually ensuring that Facebook does something to stop fake news um, or if these are just kinds of, you know, just things that are happening on the side and it's just a lot of lawyers talking to a lot of lawyers and, and nothing actually goes anywhere. So what I think is that there are so many different regulatory enforcement measures that are creating risks for these tech companies, these tech platforms. I don't think any one of them is going to be like the fatal blow that takes away the monopoly power and fixes all the problems. What I do think is it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts. You know, I just can't imagine that it's good for these companies, particularly Facebook, I feel like is, um, you know, suffering so much brand reputation, getting a reputation um, among regulators as being a persistent recidivist that just violates consent decrees and rules and laws. And, um, you know, I think there's this kind of downward spiral of brand reputation. Um, and it's just a big distraction to constantly be fending off enforcement and a, a myriad of, of jurisdictions. So, I think it may be, it's going to be a very slow downfall. I don't think any one thing is going to be um, meaningful enough to make a huge difference. I think some of the things that I most think would be most effective would be some uh, regulations around interoperability and um, you know opening up systems so that they could allow competition. So I always prefer competition. Um, I think it's a more effective way of disciplining firms' uh, behavior than, than regulation. But competition is difficult in today's day and age. I mean, if you look at uh, you, one of the things that makes Amazon so powerful is that it has all this data on you. And it, the more data that gets and the more artificial intelligence that these companies develop, the more they know what you're going to want before you're going to. I mean, one example that Amazon's been talking about that we've been hearing about is that the next version of Amazon is predictive buying where it, you know, you buy you have a one-year-old and you buy diapers every three weeks um rather than you have to log in and press the button to buy them that that amazon just starts selling to you selling them to you and they they're starting to do that now where you see this kind of option to buy you know where dish soap is sent to you once a month and eventually the theory is that 
you know, a box shows up at your front door and it's every, it's your favorite snacks and, and the, you know, the, uh, the book that you don't, didn't know you wanted to read, but it's the best book ever and, and all these different things. And how, how can you have competition in a world where algorithms uh, are just helping the biggest company be bigger? Yeah, the algorithms are so problematic. Um, I would like to have competition among algorithms. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, in the faith context of Facebook, I would like to have um, there be another social network that has an algorithm that doesn't prioritize content that makes you angry and fearful. Um, you know, when, what you're describing with Amazon, when you think about it, it's very much the same problems that we're having on Facebook that we're all getting kind of narrowed down into this tiny little box and then we're only served content that, you know, the algorithm has decided that we like. And that's the same thing for, um, gonna be the same thing for buying, right? You know, and when you just talked about, here's the book that you wanna read, okay. So I'm a, a woman in my 40s who lives in Brooklyn, so I'll only read the other books, the, the same books that all the other women in their 40s in Brooklyn read, and I'll never get exposed to <laughs> a different perspective, right? It's like the filter yeah. bubbles again. Um, so, you know, I think opening up some of that data and having open APIs that others can use, um, that competitors can use, would be one way of dealing with that. I think enforcing the antitrust laws ab against the actual anti-competitive conduct that is happening would also be a way to curb at least a little bit of the power and then also stopping the acquisitions. I mean, hmm. these companies have acquired hundreds and hundreds of, of you know, upstarts that could have been competitive threats. I mean, you know, there was that reporting about Facebook having that app, Anapo, that can detect whenever, whenever another... Um, startup is getting traction and then acquire them before it even gets on anyone's radar. Um, and there's the, you know, so so there needs to be antitrust enforcement and then I think there needs to be some opening up uh, uh, the lockdowns of the of this data to allow other services to come in and compete. All right, so we only have a few more minutes left. I have a couple of last questions for you. Um, the first one is, so you spent uh, many, many years on the uh attorney general side of this, actually bringing antitrust cases and so on. And now you've spent many years on the journalism writing side of this. Uh, do you ever think, oh, I should go back and try to bring, you know, bring a case against some of these companies? Or do you think that it's, uh, you, you're having more impact and power writing about it? Well, I like your little hypothetical where if I was actually in charge, <laughs> <laughs> if I could go back and be in charge, I would go back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, um, I think there's not much happening at the agencies. Um, so I'm having more of an impact in kind of showing the possibilities and showing the harms and showing the big picture uh, and as a writer and journalist. All right. So my last question is when you think, and I, do, I actually don't know if I could answer this question. I may be able to answer it, but I, I want to hear your answer first. Uh, when you think about all of the people that run these companies, you know, Larry Page and Sundai and, and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and, uh, and the impact they have, not necessarily on a scale, but, but you know, the actual impact they're having on democracy and, and, uh, and business and small business and so on, which of these CEOs is the scariest? Oh, geez. I have an answer, but I want to hear yours first. <laughs> um... Actually, I don't know. My answer, I have two answers, I guess. But I have to pick one. You have to pick one. Um, 
I guess Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, I just think Facebook is causing a lot of problems and, and not showing really any um, restraint in terms of fixing the problems. Um, but, you know, I, I would like to say I blame the enforcers and the government more than I blame the CEOs because CEOs are supposed to seek profits for their companies. That is what their job is. The job of governments is to make sure that we have competition that can discipline those companies from just seeking profits without any regard to the consequences and to make sure that there's some regulations to protect the people. And that's they're the ones that are failing. You know, the rest of these guys are just doing the jobs that CEOs are supposed to do. Although they're doing these jobs that CEOs are supposed to do without any regard for how the companies are destroying democracy, but eh, right. I mean, I also <laughs> think I also think that they sh- they're being short sighted. I mean, if yes. you're still just thinking about the profit motive, um, destroying democracy is not a good long term business strategy. <laughs> yes, no, you're completely right. Um, I would have to pick Mark Zuckerberg too. That would be. I, I, it's tough because I think Jeff Bezos, he has this philosophy that uh, that that a lot of people in business admire, which is that he calls it the first day philosophy, where every single day he wakes up for work imagining it's his first day at Amazon and it's the first day of the company and they the whole company, you know, operates that way, even though it is the one of the biggest companies on the planet and he's the richest person on the planet. And and I think that's terrifying because it means he's not going to stop growing in the way that he does. But at the same time, I think that he at least, you know, the the, ben, the thing I will say about Amazon, the good thing is they haven't had any major privacy scandals. Um, they're not destroying democracy per se uh, in the way that fake news and so on is. Uh, and yet Mark Zuckerberg has spent his entire life, adult life, running a company that has essentially ransacked uh, privacy and democracy. And uh, he shows no signs of trying to stop it. I have to say, I think democracy um, relates to antitrust enforcement, not just in the context of fake news um, and these filter bubbles, uh, but also in the context of the American dream. And that's why I actually am so passionate about antitrust enforcement, is that I think the American dream is really just like a critical ethos of our society and is so crucial for democracy. And once the American dream is completely and totally dead, then our democracy will suffer also. And I think, you know, this rising inequality that we're seeing is causing things like the Trump phenomenon. Um, And I do think that a lot of what Amazon is doing in terms of um, just being able to take over um, and bully smaller companies that sell on its platform or third-party sellers and even big brands um, are very bad for the American dream because what we want is to have whoever has the best product or service should be rewarded um, and be successful and not be just, you know, buried by a tech giant. Yeah, completely. Sally, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, where can people find you and your coverage and whatnot? Um, a lot of my coverage um, is behind a paywall, sadly, um, but it's at the uh, Capitol Forum. But um, people should pay. <laughs> Um, and also, I do um, write on a, a blog called Washington Bites uh, with a wide on um, Y-T-E-S uh, on Forbes. And you can just on, I'm on Twitter at Sally underscore Hubbard. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Hopefully uh, the next time we chat, it will be because somebody has actually had the guts to go after one of these big companies and, and had some sort of impact to save us. I look forward to it. We shall see. I look forward to (laughs) it. Maybe it'll be you. (laughs) 
when I'm Thanks, in charge. Sally. All right. Thanks, yeah, Nick. When you're in charge. All right. <laughs> this is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Once an attorney in New York City, Linda transformed her hobby of locating hard-to-find items into a thriving luxury consignment company called Linda's Stuff. What was once a passion project is now a 100-person company in a 93,000-square-foot space. As a company specializing in high-end previously-owned goods, reputation is everything for Linda. Integrity and trust are a critical part of how the company operates, if not the most critical part. From day one, Linda has counted on PayPal to help give her customers confidence and protect her business from fraud, even when selling internationally, and we all know how terrifying that can be. She's counted on PayPal every single step of the way. When it comes to growing your business, PayPal is your payments partner for today and tomorrow. Visit paypal.com slash growth to set up a business account today. Sign up for free. Once again, go to paypal.com slash growth. And now, in conversation with Ted Sarandos, Chief Content Officer of Netflix, Lisa Nishimura, Vice President, Original Documentary and Comedy of Netflix, Chapman Way and McLean Way, directors of Wild Wild Country, moderated by Joanna Coles, former chief content officer of Hearst Magazines. God, how exciting. I, I think that this is actually the most expensive panel we have in terms of time <laughs> spent. And what I really want to say to Ted and Lisa is, what the hell are you doing here? You've got 700 hours, <laughs> no, 700 original projects yeah. and $8 billion at stake here. We're um, here to see you. Well, good. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so first question to Ted and Lisa. I really want to know, 700 original projects $8 billion in original, to spend on original content. How do you guys spend your time? How much time do you spend schmoozing, wooing, seducing, making deals, watching TV, and reading? Someday I'll track myself on, on the hour splits, but for me, um, I spend a lot of energy these days uh, on our, international, our growth of international local language original production and our film initiative. Our scripted series business is in a great groove and growing really great under Cindy Holland, who does a fantastic job there, and Scott Stuber is running the film business, and Eric Barmack, who runs that. And honestly, God, the only way that we can do all that is that they have, and Lisa can talk to this too, but that they have unprecedented green light authority. Um, that if everything had to funnel through me, the, all, every decision through me, we would have a fraction of those shows and not who got, God knows how good they'd be. So. Um, okay, so we've moved away, or at least at Netflix, yeah. from the era of having one personality dominate all the content. Lisa, how does it work in, in actuality? How many are there of you that have green light power? I mean, what is your direct report? situation looks like about a dozen people yeah. would you say so people often talk about the the breadth of programming that we create stories across all different kinds of format whether it's scripted or nonfiction whether it's short or long form um, and I think the key is that you hire a density of talent that's deeply passionate and has deep relationships into those communities and you empower them to make choices. And what we try to do is mirror what Ted's given us, which is a lot of latitude around areas of interest. So my specific area um, is documentary, so nonfiction as well as uh, comedy. comedy. right? 
Um, and that was really driven by my passion. I literally had a conversation with Ted one afternoon uh, right after we had launched original series where he had said, I think we should expand our original programming slate. What categories do you think we can actually bring a lot of benefit and resources to and make a really material difference? And my background when I joined the company, we were a DVD company only in the United States. Um, and I was buying a lot of documentary and comedy and noticing that there was an outsized demand for this type of storytelling. And so these are two areas of incredible passion for me personally. I suggested it to him and he just said, run with it, go see what you can do. So in building my team, the original team, which really launched at the very end of 2013, so for all intents and purposes, 2014, so we're still quite nascent. Um, but I try to mirror what Ted has provided for all of us that report directly into his team, which is to hire a really talent-rich team that's incredibly different from me. So incredibly different from a background POV, from their tastes and interests. Um, and that's really the key, is that they then follow their passions, follow their stories globally uh, to try to ensure when you think about programming for 190 countries, um, that's a real depth and richness of tastes and interests. And so you want to make sure that you have people who are actively engaging and pursuing um, the right authors for those stories around the world. And how important is Global to you in terms of the bigger American productions that you're doing? Well, they all play a different role. There are some shows, Stranger Things, The 13 Reasons Why, that will play proportionately almost perfectly global, meaning as a percentage of the members in America, the same percentage of members in India are watching those shows. Uh, and then there's other shows that really play particularly well in Latin America and not much else or some play. Well, now, today, with our current size, we can have a show that plays really well uh, in Europe and in Latin America and doesn't play in the U.S. at all and still be a very big hit. So right now it's, it's that, that Tetris of programming of what are you picking that matters a lot to the local markets. And the, the scale obviously is attractive if you can get a show to uh, travel the world. Uh, but tastes are pretty diverse. So the idea that a show like Casa de Papel was an enormous hit for us oh, continued. I love that money heist. Yeah, money heist in, English. in the US. Right, I love that and show. And it continues to do very well for us all throughout Latin America, all throughout Europe. In, in great in big pockets of Asia, and it's okay in the U.S. in terms of we could think we could do we could still that brand can still grow in the U.S. So that's an example I think of how these things fit together, kind of in a global Tetris of what people want to watch. So the thing I'm really curious about as an outsider is explain the math to me of those really big contracts like the Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes. Well, it's not that different than they would happen than what happens in television. Um, you figure a, t a studio network would be paying them a percentage of their advertising and, uh, and carriage revenue, and we're just paying a percentage of our subscription revenue. Um, and when I go, when but, but does it equal, do you have a, um, an algorithm that matches to the size of the audience? Well, I think what, what we can help them do is size the project. So we have uh, enough years of, of, of performance data of different shows to know with, with I'm not saying with, uh, per perfectly, but with better than most, the ability to say this is going to be a big show, a medium show, a small show, and we want to invest in that accordingly. So not that we don't want to do that one, we just want to invest in it in the right, kind of right size the budget and the production size. Um, and with Ryan as an example, what we knew going into it, we've, had, we've licensed uh, most of Ryan Murphy's programming in second window on Netflix over the years in most countries in the world. So we've got a pretty good idea of how his shows get watched, the consistency in which his shows get watched, 
the crossover in which all of his shows get watched, meaning how many members I watch every Ryan show that comes, comes out. And it's really subtle. I don't think people even know that they're watching a Ryan Murphy show all the time. But these shows have a sensibility that talks to them. Pretty sexy, darkly funny, has a real, no matter what the show is about, it has that sensibility that people really like. And we knew that by having worked with Ryan uh, in the second window for all these years since. In fact, the very first show that we licensed on Netflix to stream that was actually still on television was a Nip, Nip Tuck. Right. And prior to that, everything else on Netflix was, had already been canceled. It was basically, the network sold it to us because they thought it was valueless. <laughs> and that was the first show we licensed that actually was still on the air. So we have a long history with Ryan. Right. And we, I think we've you know, sized that deal to his proportionate value. And there's an efficiency in what we're doing because we don't, we don't, we're, there's no, 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 no other middlemen. We're producing the programming, we're putting it in, we're monetizing it direct to our subscribers. So we're not splitting it with distributors and, and, and depending on the advertising market. So just, just, I mean, to put it really crudely, do they have to earn out at a certain number of subscriptions sold? Or, or what, what's the sort of the actual math of it? it? It's a very tough to tie one-to-one -one that way. Um, we figure how much we have to watch on Netflix and our average subscribers are, on, are engaging in Netflix every day and they're watching more than an hour a day every day everywhere in the world. And you look at that and think, wow, that's, you know, that's, there's a lot to watch on Netflix. So they have to add to that is we do watch some things like when a new show comes on and somebody newly joins, what do they watch in the first 24 hours? And we attribute some of the acquisition value to that first thing that they watch and all those kind of things. But in general, what they want to do is, is, is Ryan enhancing the Netflix subscription? Is, the, is that a reason, are those, having access to those shows, is that a reason why I join Netflix? And that's incredibly valuable if it is. Right, right. Yeah. And we want him to be, the other thing too, all of our overall deals, we don't have that many of them. Um, and the ones that we do, we have the people who we have found to be incredibly prolific, um, have a sensibility and a voice in their shows, uh, and very successful. Uh, so and both Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy yeah. are brand names, right? I mean, very few producers, directors yeah. get to be, but, but they are. And you know, it's funny, in, in, in a lot of the world, most of the Netflix subscriber who watches has spent more hours watching more of uh, Grey's Anatomy, which is a surprise for people usually when I tell them that. But it, do the math, there's almost 300 episodes of Grey's Anatomy, or about 300. And if you love that show, you're in. And you wait for the new season to come, and you're watching it on Netflix every time. So I think time spent, Grey's Anatomy is one of the most watched shows on Netflix. Well, that's ever. hardly surprising with McSteamy and McDreamy. I would spend <laughs> many hours as I could with But again, that's not, even, um, that's not even giving credit to Scandal and how to get away with murder. And right, I, th I think you should double the subscription value. Oh, the double the subscription price then. Done. Um, <laughs> all right, good. Um, so, so it dawned on me, here we are at the new establishment, but in fact, you guys have become the establishment. You have huge talent deals, uh, enormous reach, you've won tons of awards. We've got the, the Chapman, uh, well, the Way brothers, McLean and Chapman here, who got, just got, congratulations, an Emmy for the absolutely spellbinding Wild Wild Country. Wow. Who, in the, who in the audience? A show of hands. Who in the audience has seen Wild Wild Country? Oh, love that. Good. So a good, a good show. And those of you who haven't, You're right? Uh, the minute this session is over, don't stay for the rest of the conference. <laughs> Just run, sign on to Netflix and watch it because it's the most incredible six and a half hours worth of television. But but you are the establishment now, and the the establishment that you disrupted is now trying to disrupt you guys. Lisa. 
I'm throwing that to you because Ted's been doing sterling work. Yeah, <laughs> he's good at that. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I honestly feel like we're really just starting, you know, particularly in relation to the global element of it. You know, when you're in 190 countries, you shouldn't wake up in the morning and understand that you know less than you know, right? Meaning it's, it's incumbent upon us, my creative team in particular, we have to get on airplanes, we have to travel to all the different countries, we have to meet with filmmakers, both established and up and coming, because, um, you know, what's incredibly important for us is authorship. Who gets to tell the story is wildly important. And the idea of people coming out of the US or Western markets and flying to the corners of the earth to tell every single story just doesn't make sense. There are elements where that makes sense and there are times when you really need to go to the source. And what's great is we're in an organization that is uh, you know, globalizing in a real way and we're very much in, in student mode, which I love. You know, As an executive, the ability to show up for every day and know that you're gonna learn something. But there's no way to cheat that. You actually have to get into each of those different um, you know, each of those different countries and you have to really understand what are the stories that are most compelling and most resonant and who are the right people um, to tell those stories. So um, I, I appreciate and recognize that people talk a lot about us being, um, you know, having arrived and, and really sort of made a mark, but we're really, I feel like we're really just starting and really just starting to understand um, the importance and, and the responsibility that comes with having a platform where filmmakers can talk directly to 190 countries. That's a really big deal. And so we want to be incredibly thoughtful in the way that we think about that. But I, I guess what I was also trying to get at was um, the idea that the establishment, who may have been complacent, have woken up to the extraordinary changes in the industry that you've wrought. And so you've got Disney and, and the Fox deal going ahead. And then you've also got Amazon and Apple getting into the content business. And that's not their first love. And frankly, eight billion could be a footnote for them if they decide that this is something they want to do. So how conscious are you of them as disruptors and potential disruptors of Netflix? Netflix. So we try, and we, I'd say we try, we, we don't focus much energy on any competitor. Um, mostly if we find if we're, if we're managing to the 190 people who are subscribers to Netflix, our members, and their satisfaction and their joy, that we do pretty well. And if we get too worried about, the, about competition, I mean, we're like you, I don't have any idea what that Apple product's going to be. Uh, I don't think anybody does. I don't think the people who are making shows for them really even know yet what that's going to be. Um, so I don't really, so I can't spend that much energy thinking about it. So what we really want to do is spend most of our energy thinking about how are we making people happy. And there's a great way to measure that with subscriber growth, with um, viewing hours growth, are people engaging with the service more. And as we grow around the world, that's how we can measure ourselves. How we're doing against competition, it's, so, it's, it's not clear who our competition is. So I mean, there's plenty of it, for sure. And you, to your point, they could certainly afford to do what we're doing. Um, the one thing I do give advice to people who ask about um, a, a job or an opportunity, I always say, look, you want to go to work for a company, a great company, and take the lowest job at the strategic center of what that company does. And uh, for us, it, this is all we do. Right. This so, is it. So yeah. uh, in all these other companies who are getting into this business, uh, this is not yet the strategic center of what they do. It might evolve to be. Uh, but it's certainly far from that today. The only advantage they have is because it's not their strategic center and their business is selling cell phones or toilet paper if you're Amazon, yes. um, then you have more money to spend. Mm -hmm. but, you, just, but they want to spend it smart. They're smart right. people. So. 
But sorry to cut you off. It's not just the spend, it's also the creative focus, right? If this is the only thing that we're meant to do is to try to figure out how to work with the best filmmakers, the best storytellers, and bring their stories to a global audience, that's the driver, right? We're not taking ads, we're not, right? You're driven very specifically. Um, and I feel it every day in the office where we're talking about how, what can we remove that's a distraction to make sure that you have over 5,000 employees focusing on really one thing, and that's really quite powerful. All right, so let's bring in the content makers here. We've got um, Chapman and McLean Way, astonishing achievement with Wild Wild Country. Tell us how it came about, and then I want to know the nuts and bolts of what it was like actually making it with these guys. Yeah, we had uh, done our first documentary with Netflix in 2014, which was really earlier in their original pr programming initiative. Um, and that was a documentary that took place in Portland, Oregon. So as we were wrapping up that first documentary, we came across this archival collection of over 300 hours of footage on the story of Roshanish Purim. And we immediately kind of started taking some of the money we had made from Battered Bastards to start <laughs> transferring the tapes. We kind of put it all back into Wild Wild Country <laughs> um, and came across a bunch of great characters and a really thrilling saga that people seem to have forgotten. And so it wasn't too long after that that we'd gotten some uh, connections to characters and we took it to Netflix to show them what we were working on and partnered with it. So did you get, because the, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, the, the series is, or the, the show is dominated by a character called Sheila, who is the most extraordinary find possibly in the history remarkable. of documentaries, she's, she's actually. I mean, she's, uh. I wish she were on the panel with us because yeah. <laughs> um, she would swear undoubtedly at some point, probably stalk off. You'd need a lot um, more time. <laughs> you would need a lot more time. <laughs> Not allowed to come um, to the United States either. So. Uh, so that, well, we could have beamed her in. But, but at what point did you secure her? Did you secure her before you went to Netflix? Or? Yeah. We Actually, the first archival tape that we played was Sheila cursing out Ted Koppel on the night show. <laughs> so we were immediately like, wow, who is this character? Let's, let's go track her down. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I think Wild Wild Country makes a lot of sense. But to be honest, when we first started conceiving it as a six-hour documentary series, we took it to a lot of places and tried to get this kind of off the ground. That was kind of the advice we were given. And um, to be honest, honest, the reception was pretty cold at a lot of places. A lot of people were looking for a very name-recognizable celebrity with a built-in audience. And our whole thing was like, that, that's what makes the story so great. It's like, no one knows about it. People are going to, it's going to blow people's minds. Um, it really wasn't until, and like, thank God, fingers crossed, we always wanted to take it to Netflix anyway, because we did our first documentary with them. Um, but Lisa and her team were kind of the first people to really lean into that, and they weren't phased at all. Like, we had a meeting with a, net, with a executive at another place, and they were like, well, what celebrities were a part of this group and we were like well that's not right and then it was like okay well maybe we can get a celebrity narrator to narrate it and i was like ah oh, this meeting's not going the well the way that okay mclean who was that let's, name, let's name. just call them out come on who was that it was hbo <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's Richard in the audience. I don't think Richard you knew about that. You didn't think you were actually going to answer the question. <laughs> no, I did. I was hoping. <laughs> okay, so, so interesting. So HBO... They've, they've done some pretty good stuff. Oh, yeah, they've, they've, done they've done some they pretty have, good stuff. They have. Yeah. Well, well responded. Yeah, yeah. That was very diplomatic. Yeah. Um, especially because Richard's having a party tonight that we want to go to. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> um, so... Uh, who were the other people? 
I think I should keep my mouth shut. <laughs> so, so Lisa, you, yeah. you, how do you, I mean, do you reach out to Lisa? Do you know about her? Do you cold call her? What's the actual process of you guys well, we had connecting? worked on their first film together. Oh, right, The Battered Bastards right. of Baseball. So I saw it at Sundance, and I just fell in love with this film because I think that the way that they construct story, you don't have to know anything about the universe. You don't have to be a, a sports fan at all. And Battered Bastards of Baseball is just a remarkable story about the human spirit and, and friendship and family. Um, and I knew that they had something incredibly special. So we stayed in touch. Um, and the documentary world is tiny. Um, and so when we knew that they were out pitching, we absolutely wanted them to come in. And I think it was kind of not dissimilar from when I first sat down with the filmmakers of Making a Murderer. You hear about a storytelling universe that has a richness and an, almost an unbelievable quality, and it's only in the fact that it is nonfiction that your brain can take it on. And, and I often say to my team, you know, you think about scripted narrative movies that open with that Chiron that says, based on true events. Right? And then it goes into sort of a, a feature scripted version of it. I mean, they do that because they believe that the notion of it being real draws you in and makes you feel more connected to the various subjects and characters. And we have the great pleasure of everything we swim in is actually real people, real events. So when they started talking about the Rajneeshi and the original vision, and then you start to understand you know, Anand Sheila, you, I mean, it was just such a rich canvas. And I knew that they uniquely had a connection and an incredible gift to tell that story. And so you should add, by the way, but the, the one beauty of working across all kinds of different genres of programming is you also had a great partner and advocate in Mark Duplass, oh, who we've done a lot of great work with in the indie film space and has always been a great uh, champion for Netflix. And uh, and he he was a he was huge for us. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and how did you settle on the idea, or, or was it part of the editing that you got to it being six and a half hours? Yeah, we knew early on that we had met with a lot of people in Eastern Oregon. We had met with a lot of Roshnishis and ex-Roshnishis, and we had spent a lot of time with government officials. And it was clear that it was kind of like a triangle where all three had like vastly different perceptions of what happened out there between 1981 and 1985. And we knew if we did that in a 90-minute feature, it would get truncated so much where it would get really easy just to choose sides, and there's a villain, a bad guy, and there's a hero. Um, and that wasn't our experience getting to know all these people. We felt like everyone had really valid arguments for why they did what they did. And so uh, capturing that nuance uh, was much easier and a bigger canvas than a truncated version. And what were Lisa's notes like? Yeah, we were, got really, really great notes. I think one of the great things about Netflix is they give you a ton of support early on in pre-production when you're there. And then they kind of let you go off and they put a lot of faith and responsibility in you during production to go get your footage, film it, and then bring it back. They really come on board during the post-production process again, sending cuts. So we would send um, a rough cut of each episode as we finished it. Um, and I remember one example, we had sent our first episode in and one of the main notes was to kind of tweak the ending, which is we initially had it where Bhagwan the Guru kind of walked off into blackness and it was more of a poetic ending and our titles came up. And Netflix's great note was bring it back to Antelope, Oregon one more time. Let the audience know this is where the story is going to be. It's going to be a, a battle between these two communities. And it really kind of added that cliffhanger suspense that yeah. really made you want to click on the next episode and figure out where the story was and going. I know that's like a small anecdote, but that last scene of the Roshni, she's coming back in the Antelope at the end, it almost really centered the whole series as like, this is going to be, this is a series about a political war that's going to erupt in Eastern Oregon. Um, but yeah, there are notes like, you know, we've been spoiled because Netflix has kind of mostly always been our home. But, you know, it's like you hear other notes from executives 
executives and it's always like, take this out, take that out, take this out. Netflix is kind of like an empowering process where like, hey, here's what we are loving about this episode. And then slowly as you kind of start to build towards those notes, the kind of parts of the episode that aren't working so well end up on the cutting room floor. So one of the complaints you sometimes hear um, about work going to Netflix yeah. is that people worry it doesn't get surfaced and it gets lost because there's so much material there. With Wild Wild Country, I felt like within the space of maybe three days, suddenly everybody I knew was watching it and I immediately obviously had to go and watch it. And it was word of mouth, I think, rather than it surfacing on Netflix. So how would you select the audience for something like Wild Wild Country? Well, there's the, the built-in algorithmic one, which is the people who love um, the documentary series generally like a lot of them and like a variety of storytelling in that, in that area of programming. Uh, but there's all kinds of other things about what other people are watching that would lead you to believe with high certainty, uh, documentary feature watching, documentary short watching, documentary series watching, that they would love this. Or, or their film watching or their scripted season watching. The people who love Ozark love Wild Wild Country. Right, right. And we know that algorithmically very dependably. So there's a notion that things get lost on Netflix. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually kind of silly. It's a, because in fact, things get found on Netflix in remarkable numbers. And because we don't publish ratings, people will say that out loud because you, outside of your own social circle, like I know, you may find yourself saying, I never heard of that um, because it's not for you. And the way that it comes out, and eventually something will rise up in the zeitgeist to be so big that everyone knows about it. So this room probably overrepresents a little bit, right, for, because, um, for Wild Wild Country the same way. Uh, when I got to India to do press a few weeks ago, we had uh, a few months ago now, um, Nanette, uh, the Hannah Gatsby, who's on, mm -hmm. the, on the panel, uh, later, um, her show, everyone in India wanted to talk about it. Every, every reporter wanted to know about Nanette. And there's no reason to believe that anyone in India would know about that show other than the, 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 the site help, helps them find it. And right. then it just exploded through, kind of through word of mouth and through, and we do a lot of advertising as well too. So there's a lot of things, again, uh, we had 40 different shows that were nominated for the Emmy Awards this year. You know, these shows have all kind of rose, rise to the top of the zeitgeist. But you worry when people say, well, you have so much to watch. Yeah, well, it's not all for you. And, the, 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 and Netflix has the ability to parse out those things that are for you. And the magic of finding something that, that the way you connected to that show uh, is so valuable that our ability to do that across incredible, incredibly vast taste um, is what makes things get found on Netflix, not get lost. All right, so I want to come back to you for, for immediately on that for one thing. Um, if you have questions in the audience, you're supposed to, I think, tweet them. How, how do we get questions? And then you have to hashtag, I think, e email. You email, can someone just give me the address? Is it vf at condenas.com? Did everybody get that? <laughs> email your questions immediately to at vfsummit at condenas.com. Good, so I'm coming back to you. So this idea that's, that Netflix has something for everyone and that it can be all TV, which is how you've talked about it. It's about how, how Reed Hastings has talked about it. How can you be all TV when after a week like last week when we, everybody was glued to the Kavanaugh hearings, um, you don't have live. Is live and is news part of the roadmap? I don't think so. I mean, I look at it and think our, we're primarily uh, embraced as an entertainment brand. And I think what's happening, that kind of watching you're describing, uh, is a lot of things, but not terribly entertaining. Uh, it's aggravating, it's, uh, it's it gets people talking, it keeps you up at night, uh, but it's not terribly entertaining. So we try to stay out of the, basically we avoid the things, these, these now, 10 years from now, five years from now, 
That's going to be an amazing doc series. <laughs> and right. we'd love to see well, that deep exploration. And we want the Way brothers to make it, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, there you go. But right now, being in the middle of the news cycle with it, particularly we're, uh, you know, we're a, a global brand, and, uh, and, it's, and we're pri our primary focus is consumer joy. And I think that that, um, like I said, that is watching, uh, but it's not very joyful. The only thing I would come back at you on that with is that I feel that Netflix is extremely ambitious to have cultural footprints in the culture. And it seems hard to do that without covering something like the Kavanaugh hearings, not as a documentary, but as they're going on. I don't, I mean, these are not, it's not an AB and neither or, but um, what happened this summer with these romantic sitcoms, uh, were, or uh, rom-coms, I'm sorry, uh, were incredibly important in the culture. And, like, and if you look at something like um, To All the Boys I Loved Before, mm -hmm. um, the stars of that, of that film went from almost nothing to you know, tens of millions of social media followers in a week. And more people saw the, uh, To All the Boys I Loved Before than any movie in North America the week it came out. Uh, and, and the social media buzz on that film was three times greater. Now that's just pure love and entertainment and joy, but you see that around things like 13 Reasons Why, where there's a, yeah. a discussion, a global conversation about bullying and teen suicide and, 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 and watching numbers that would you know, blow away anything on television anywhere in the world. And you think that that is happening in the zeitgeist and it's happening quite organically and it's happening quite, more importantly, it's happening passionately. Okay. Fair enough. All right. There's a question. There's a question for Ted, which is, how has the democratization of content creation impacted how you source and develop original content? So there, um, outside of the U.S., it's not unusual for us to find content from, you know, on social, posted to social media and develop it into something else. Uh, I'm Not an Easy Man is a, a film that we made in France that was based on a YouTube short that they, uh, our, our film buyer found it, um, fell in love with it, re reached out to them, financed the production of a short film. And French, what's interesting, French romantic comedies don't re typically travel outside of France very well. And that became for us a very big hit all, all throughout Europe. Well, often um, because they're not very good, let's be honest. That's good, yeah. Right? I've watched a lot of yeah, them, and you? I'm like, how is this a movie? Yes, although I do like some well. of the other shows you brought over, like Marseille, I thought was fantastic. Yeah. Call My Agent, fantastic. Call My Agent, so it did come Brilliant. Through, through the similar channels. And so a lot of, so, so what happens is, if you have an idea, or if you have a passion, or if you have a story, you can get it out there. You can't necessarily get it on Netflix, you can't necessarily sell it to HBO or FX, but you can, you can get it somewhere else, and then that could lead to your next thing. And that didn't used to exist. So the best advice I always give people, if you have a story to tell, just take out your phone and tell it, and hopefully someone will, you know, and there's all these different vehicles to find it. Okay, we've got another question. How important are film festivals to the content team? Just the big ones or the mini three-day festivals too? And I'm going to give that to you guys first, the Way yeah. Brothers first. McLean with the hair, Chapman is the bald one, yeah. um, just in case. Um, because you... Unlucky um, jeans. Oh, no. the, didn't the battered bastards surface at Sundance? Yeah, we, we did. We, uh, yeah, it's Battered Bastards was, was a completely self-financed independent documentary that we took. And Sundance is a little bit of the Wild West where you can take these self-produced, self-financed projects and get them in front of distributors and audiences. And 
I think as a filmmaker, it's always a thrill that first time you show what you've been working on for the past few years to an audience, and that's, that's really fun, and there's critics there that get to see it and review it, so it's always been a positive experience for us going to festivals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we took Battered Bastards there, and that was like everything that we could have wanted it to be. We actually showed all of Wild Wild Country this year at the Sundance Film Festival. It was all six and a half hours. Um, so there's pros and cons to doing each of those. Like I, having people sit down and watch all of that in one go in very stiff seats. The, you know, a surprising amount of people stuck around and watched the whole thing. But yeah, <laughs> some years are good, some years not. And so, I, I was just going to add on yeah. the business side of it, it's just as likely that we today are making the movie that, may, that will open that festival, but will also be there as a, as a buyer of content that we didn't right. produce. So it's very incredibly important. And uh, which are your favorite festivals, or the most useful ones? Well, they're, they're different for different purposes and reasons, right? So Sundance is always top of the year. It's an incredibly prestigious festival. You follow that with Berlin, which is wonderful for a European audience. Genre-wise, South By plays a role. Then you have Tribeca, then you have Cannes. They all sort of have their own you know, moment and foothold. Certainly the fall festival circuit is incredibly important, I think, to demarcate for the award season. Um, so we utilize and work really closely with the, the film festival programmers who are looking for a, you know, a deep and, and rich cross-section of storytelling. And for us, some of it is timing, right? We're always trying to give our filmmakers as much time that they can utilize to bring the story to fruition in the way that uh, they're seeking to do. Um, but I think all the various festivals are incredibly helpful and, and unique, and so we really try to program what those festival runs are in a really bespoke way. Okay, so, so this, this past year we um, had Private Life that just opened this week um, at premiere at Sundance, it won't be a film that we produced, uh, but we bought Kindergarten Teacher, which is also premiering next week with Maggie Gyllenhaal that we purchased at Sundance. So we're, we're there on both sides of the, of the equation now. Okay, so it's all about Sundance, yeah. basically. And as a movie fan, I love Telluride. No, as a movie fan, I love Telluride. Telluride. Is amazing. I mean, the experience of going to Telluride just as a movie lover and just being able to see a lot of movies in a really compact space with a lot of other movie lovers, without a lot of parties and without a lot of lines and without, yeah. it's just an amazing experience. I think there's lover. a dispensary in Telluride for that every has, film. That, that, that does not <laughs> add to the joy of Telluride for me. Telluride is, Telluride is unique. <laughs> but yes, there are some. It's unique because it's not listed as a market. So every yeah. other, Sundance, Toronto, all these other festivals, they also have a market component, so there's a buy-sell. I think as far as American festivals go, Telluride is definitive in that it's a real celebration of the cinema arts, and it's not, you know, there aren't crazy red carpets, there aren't press things, there aren't, it's really about filmmakers coming and showing their films to film lovers. And there is something very unique about the, the experience at Cannes which is a different kind of celebration of film as right. well, right. Um, uh, with a different level of elegance and a different, you know, whole different approach. Venice as well. Um, but that's, you know, being on that, on that red carpet at Cannes for a premiere, there's not, almost nothing like it. It's like going to film church. It's very Oh my God, you are so establishment. You are so establishment. I'm just a fan. I'm um, a fan. All right, so we've yeah. got another question, which is a, a good one. What, uh, not meaning that the other two weren't good, just saying, <laughs> um, what if something isn't for anyone? How do you decide to cancel or move away from a project? It, it's actually, there's twofold. One is it's a straightforward one around relative to what it costs to make, and not, not enough people show up. Um, either not enough people start the first episode and they just don't don't keep going. So we have a lot of you know a lot of data driven decision making that just goes around. We d we could not find the audience for the show, and when we did, they didn't stick with it. And relative to what it cost, we should redeploy that into something else. Uh, and then the other one is sometimes there's a creative one, which is there isn't a creative take for additional seasons. 
Um, I think it's a really, we're at a really interesting time where, you know, we do programming around the world. And in, by, by way of example, in the UK, there's very few multi-season shows. They're usually all one season and they're done and they go on to the next one. And that's the way the television is mostly works. I think Peaky Blinders is the only multi-season show on BBC One. So when you think about, about that, was Broadchurch was Broadchurch ITV? Was ITV. Okay. So when you think about that and you think, well, the, what, that's what's so unique about the U.S. television market is there's this expectation of unlim un infinite storytelling. Every show that comes on has to go on forever, and if it's canceled in its sixth year, it failed. You know, so it's it's a very interesting thing that's worth changing. And I'm wondering, I always often wonder when will these will these two things meet somewhere in the middle, and we'll be much more likely in the business of telling longer limited series or. Uh, over time where, you know, that's because I think what's interestingly changing in people, the way, that, the way people watch is there's an orientation toward new because there's so much great new all the time. Mm -hmm. So when you have a great season one that people fall in love with and they get really excited about, think about what it takes to get them back to season two now because there's been a whole year of new stuff that they haven't gotten to yet. And that every time you launch anything, including a new season of an existing show, you're not just competing against everything that came out that week. You're competing against everything ever made, every time. Right. So, this, so, the, so the way that TV gets made might evolve to be closer to a, you know, the consumer demand over time. So, so what's the best thing that you guys have made that no one ever found? Hmm. Per, well, so this is all subjective, obviously. I, I was a huge fan of a show we did called Lady Dynamite. Um, Mitch Hurwitz, who dress, created Arrested Development, and it, yeah, there it goes, fan. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> that was kind of true, yeah. wasn't it? Rather it was a, desolate. Yeah, and it's just an example of a show that I think it was the best possible version of what it was, and it yeah. just relative to what it cost to make a TV show, we just couldn't get enough people to turn out for it. And we gave it a second season, uh, and it just, you know, from that point. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, uh, so there's an example of one, which I just think is, there was no creative shortcoming. Uh, it just, there wasn't enough audience for the show. Okay, so I think probably the final question. Um, I should point out, Maria Bamford is so funny on that show. And if you're a fan of hers, of her stand-up, you'd really, you'd love it too. Okay, so after you've watched Wild Wild Country, um, <laughs> yes, what was it called again? There. I've already La forgotten what La it was called. See? It's a bad title maybe. <laughs> Lady Dynamite. Lady yeah. Dynamite, okay. Um, what are the Obamas going to do for you guys? They can do a lot. I mean, they're, um, they've got their eyes on film and television, fiction and nonfiction. Um, and they're, you know, they want to do programming, storytelling that is fitting with, with the things that they have done uh, in the, with the presidency, obviously, but things that they've been, their experiences they've had throughout their entire life. So there's sports and lifestyle, obviously, and nutrition. And uh, I don't think about it as being pol political and heavy in that way. Uh, it's more um, great storytelling. And yeah, are they going to be on camera? Are we going to see them? I hope so. Uh, we're, we're, we're working at projects right now with them exec producing uh, some voiceover work, some on-camera work. So we'll have a lot more. We don't have too much we can talk about yet from that deal, but there'll be a lot to talk about later this year. All right. So what are you guys up to next? How do, how do we get the volunteer for the Obama show? <laughs> Noted. <laughs> what <do> we <laughs> Um, we're working on a couple of projects that we're actually talking to, to Lisa and Ted about that we're really excited about. Uh, nothing too far down the road that we're talking about it publicly, but uh, some stuff we're really, really excited about. So it's an incredible time for the documentary film industry right now. You know, we've gotten to talk to become friends with older documentary filmmakers that made some of the best documentaries from the 80s and 90s, you know, and back then there just wasn't really the robust industry that exists today. So we honestly wake up every day and we kind of thank our lucky stars. What's happening? Sheila, the musical. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's what's next. <laughs>
So give us all, as a sort of parting word, your own personal recommendations from, from Netflix. What, if, if people could only watch one series, what would you want them to watch? Oh. Well, I, I, that's impossible, because I have no idea what they saw. <laughs> well, out. It, it, for a new person who's yet to subscribe. Um, I, I think The Crown, because mm. uh, again, again, not knowing much about where you came from, um, I, think it's, um, an I think it's an incredible uh, true life story that is told in a way that is, is as dramatic as anything scripted has ever been, uh, with an incredible cast, every word written by Peter Morgan yeah, so beautifully, beautifully written. Uh, and shot at a level of, you know, of, of real cinematic quality like I've never seen before. And I think it probably, for anyone in the world not knowing anything about their background, I would say The Crown would be my pick. And what, my just out of interest, what's the global audience for The Crown been to date, as far as you know? Uh, quite large, but we don't give the numbers out publicly. But but, but, almost got me. <laughs> I wasn't trying to get you, but no, I'm just a, curious. No, Those are my very, people. You know, it's interesting because it's a great, it, it travels better, you know, it travels the world very well. Anyone who has any experience with the monarchy or any history, uh, if it's interesting, like in Japan, uh, where American television and British television doesn't always play very well, um, there's, they're fascinated with government, with government stories of, the, of government. And so it, it works really, really well everywhere in the world. So it's exciting. Okay, The Crown, Lisa, one I'm, show. I'm gonna do a little self-plug, but I'm very, very excited about it. We have a new season of Making a Murderer coming. Um, ah, good move. And <laughs> this, I mean, for I can tell you personally, when we did the first season, we really didn't know whether or not anybody outside of Manitowoc, Wisconsin, would care, right? It felt like a really provincial, really specific story. But I think what the filmmakers did so brilliantly was really focus on the universal issues of core justice and fairness and classism and family. And we were shocked to find that it not only resonated outside of Wisconsin throughout the entirety of the United States, but globally as well. So we have a new season coming, which I think will be quite a fascinating look at the judicial system. And it also won an Emmy, right? Yeah. Yeah, congratulations. Well, thank you so much for your thank time. You. The Way Brothers, we wish you great luck you. Uh, with your next endeavor. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Thanks to my guest this week, Sally Hubbard. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave a really nice, happy review while you're there. Preferably five stars. We'll even take six. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors this week, Groa, Robinhood, and PayPal. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Podcast. I will see you all next week as we have our lead up to the midterm elections. Drum roll, don't forget to vote. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 